Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Ida Vok in London. I'm Emily Tampion in Washington, D.C. It's Friday the 13th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Ido is in London. How are you, Ido? I'm very well. It's very exciting to finally meet my colleagues who I've worked with for some months but never seen in person which uh, I'd imagine is uh, an experience that you have also uh, gone through. So you are back with me on the pod this week. Regular listeners, if you miss co-host Jeremy Cliff, fear not because he is, as you may know, hosting a special series on the German elections that comes out every other week. So the second episode should be out next week. It will be in our regular pod feed. Um, So subscribe and tune into that. But here on the main pod, we have some talking to do. Before we bring in our guest, Ido, what from the past week do you think will go down in history? I have been watching with some dismay what's been happening in Afghanistan. The Taliban have taken about 10 provincial capitals in the past few days at the time of speaking, and they're in control of most of the country's territory and a growing number of medium and large cities. This has caused growing consternation in Europe and in in the US. And obviously this is happening because of Joe Biden's planned withdrawal, which which he has shown no sign of, of wanting to change. And it's pretty obvious at this point that the Afghan government is facing a very tough struggle to retain control of of the country and it might be reduced to just Kabul and maybe a a handful of other centers if even that. What have you been watching this week? Well I would to to that I would just add that reportedly the United States is even you know trying to negotiate with the Taliban to spare the U.S. embassy in Kabul like that's how how dire the situation is in Afghanistan so that your is one that you're right to highlight and one we will continue to watch both in our New Statesman coverage and here on the podcast. My moment from the past week is the to me, highly unexpected resignation of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. Cuomo, you may remember, was hailed at the beginning of the pandemic as a sort of anti-Trump. And then, well, then he actually wrote a book on leadership lessons from the COVID pandemic before the pandemic was over, but no matter. Then it came out that his administration had been lying about the numbers of nursing home deaths and that they had been releasing COVID patients back into nursing homes. But then basically a series of women came out who had worked for him came out and said that they had been sexually harassed by Cuomo. There was an investigation by the attorney general's office. They found that he had indeed sexually harassed a number of women and had broken federal and state laws. He resisted calls to resign for about a week 
And then finally this week claimed that he had done nothing wrong, but said that he would nevertheless be resigning. Some suspect it's because if he had been impeached, he would not be able to hold office in the state of New York in the future. To me, this is notable just because this is arguably the most high profile politician to have fallen to to Me Too accusations. I would also just note that while it, it feels like this all happened quite quickly, Andrew Cuomo, the son of former New York Governor Mario Cuomo, had for for years, it had been an open secret that it was like a toxic, that he created a toxic, hostile work environment. And what I hope comes from this is that we, when we assess people's leadership and we assess people's you know styles and talents as politicians and, and leaders, that we take into account how they treat the people around them too and appreciate that that is an extension of their policy. With that, and on a completely unrelated note, we are going to bring in our guest. We are pleased to have a repeat offender on the podcast this week. It is New Statesman contributor Nick Burns. Nick, how are you today? Doing very well. I'm glad to be on. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We had you on last year and we spoke about California, but today we are going to talk about Brazil. You have a piece this week about the political situation in Brazil. Before we get to the political situation in Brazil, I wanted to just get our listeners up to speed on the COVID situation in Brazil. Obviously, over the course of the past year and a half, Brazil has been one of the countries that was particularly hard hit by the pandemic, in part because of the choices by by its leader. Can you tell us more about that and about the current state of things in Brazil vis-a-vis the pandemic? Yes, yeah, so Brazil has been particularly hard hit by COVID-19. Uh, of course, early in the pandemic, there were all sorts of theatrical outbursts from President Jair Bolsonaro as he first insisted the pandemic was a little flu and strongly resisted all sort of lockdown measures. Then there were a sort of number of COVID scares involving the president himself. He had it, he didn't have it. And then finally, it turned out he did have it and he recovered from the illness all the while going through a number of health ministers as the country sort of struggled to respond to the pandemic. Earlier this year, variants hit the Amazonian city of Manaus and strained the healthcare system there very badly. There were terrifying reports of the city running out of oxygen tanks and people dying unnecessarily for this reason. The rate of death from coronavirus in Brazil is is still quite high today as the government trying to buy up vaccines and get them into Brazilians' arms. And there's been some scandals on that front recently There's been a lot of coverage, scandal involving vaccine procurement, especially from an Indian vaccine. There are allegations that the government has, you know, arranged the contracts in ways that involve bribes. And this is another scandal that's that's hitting the Bolsonaro government right now. Brazil has a a sort of famed national healthcare system that's the biggest in the world, bigger than Britain's National Health Service. Of course, Brazil is a country of 200 million. The National Health Service in in Brazil, known as SUS, S-U-S, is famed for its vaccination campaigns and its mascot, Zé Gotinha, I guess that's sort of Joe Vaccine or Joe Jab, something like that, as a kind of national symbol. But through a kind of combination of reluctance at the federal level and a lack of supply of vaccines, of course, it's been more difficult for developing and middle-income countries to obtain vaccines at the same rate as the developing world has. The campaign has been slower than than in most of the rich world. You know, you just outlined a number of scandals plaguing Bolsonaro, who I think by all accounts has 
mishandled this pandemic in every way that it could have been mishandled. Has this changed the political landscape in Brazil at all? Or is it still Bolsonaro supporters continue to support him? The opposition continues to be opposed? I think the single most consequential uh, event over the last couple of years for Bolsonaro's political future was the lifting of convictions that had prevented former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, from running in uh, the next set of elections next year. As devastating as the pandemic has been in Brazil, I think they, without Lula, there were really surprisingly sort of few mainstream challengers to Bolsonaro. His support had remained surprisingly stable up until earlier this year, when a surprise decision by the Supreme Court allowed Lula to run in these next set of elections, which it looks like he will do. Speaking of Lula, obviously, Lula has been a stalwart of Brazilian politics for a very long time. I think he first ran for president in 1988, and he's come first or second something like six times. But he, he was disqualified and he couldn't run against Bolsonaro, which a lot of people credit Bolsonaro's victory for. And can you just speak about the the impact that that has had on, on Brazilian politics? Because obviously Bolsonaro went through a big chunk of his term as kind of without this very prominent potential rival, and now he's back. Has that altered politics? in Brazil. Absolutely. I think up until that point, Bolsonaro had been governing, I guess it's not fair to say without an opposition, but without an obvious candidate who could beat him out in the next set of elections. It looked, despite everything, that he might uh, coast to victory. Now that's that's completely changed. The polls look quite bad for him. And that that's also changed since the return of Lula to the political scene. There were polls taken asking people whether they would support Bolsonaro or hypothetical Lula were he to return to politics. And those polls looked good for Bolsonaro until the point at which this uh, Supreme Court decision uh, allowed Lula to return to politics. And now the polling has completely gone the opposite direction. A couple of polls have even suggested that the election might not even go to a second round. Lula could win outright in the first round. This obviously is quite disturbing to Bolsonaro in his in his circle. I'd like to get back to Lula, but first I think we should just establish, you know, we before we before we start talking about more about Lula v. Bolsonaro, do we also have a sense of what are the issues that matter most to Brazilian voters? I think sometimes, at least in the United States, there is this kind of temptation to assume like, well, the right-wing candidate appeals to people who are like right-wing voters in the United States, right? Or, you know, leftists support Lula, and that means that his voters care about X, Y, and Z. But but could you speak a bit about what are the top issues to Brazilian voters and who tends to end up supporting Bolsonaro and supporting Lula? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's uh, a little bit hard to discern sometimes, but certainly a demographic that has gone more for Bolsonaro in the past. That was the pivotal sort of demographic group in the last set of elections was evangelical voters. Evangelicals are a increasing proportion of Brazilian society. It's something like 40% now. It's been growing very fast over the last couple of decades. Bolsonaro himself is Catholic but had himself rebaptized in the Jordan River during his campaign in a gesture of appeal to evangelicals. And I believe his children are evangelical as well. Uh, so that's, that's um, sort of one, one part of, of the picture. 
certainly Lula has longstanding appeal among the country's poor, especially in the Northeast region, which is the traditional stronghold of power for his party, the Workers' Party. Earlier in the pandemic, this dynamic had been somewhat suspended in part due to checks for poor Brazilians that went out during the pandemic to support them during lockdowns and help make sure that they wouldn't have to uh, continue informal work during the period of, of quarantine. This, I think, amid all the all of the scandals, is uh, sometimes forgotten as as a surprisingly generous and and it seemed quite effective uh, public policy uh, that the Bolsonaro government undertook. But those checks have since since stopped uh, toward the end of last year. It had seemed that these checks had some kind of effect on Bolsonaro's support among poor Brazilians. And as Lula has returned, those checks now gone. It seems that is, has gone into reverse. Are there other players in this Brazilian political drama? Like, are there other parties and candidates that our listeners should know about? Or, or is it really seen in Brazil as Bolsonaro v. Lula? It seems quite likely, barring some other legal or juridical action, that those will be the, the two candidates in a second round, if there is one, in in the next set of elections. I'm going to throw it over to Ido, but I, I do want to note that um, Bolsonaro's son was here in the United States this week at an event with Mike Lindell, aka the My Pillow Guy, on alleged unproven voter fraud in the United States. Talking about Bolsonaro for for a second, so he was he was elected in 2018, and when he was elected, it was he was seen as like a really far right figure, kind of pro. I suppose at least this was how it was presented in in some sections of the media, and maybe you can tell us whether this is exactly accurate, but basically pro sort of pretty much pro deforestation of the Amazon, pro gun, very homophobic against abortion, drug liberalization and and so on. And I, I guess we hear a lot about his response to COVID in particular and generally how bad it's been. Um but on on those kind of other issues, how has his term actually transpired, and how has that gone down? Because as I, as I understand it, it's quite a big shift from the previous administrations, including obviously Lula's and and some of the poli- some of the environmental policies policies on indigenous people and and so on. How has Bolsonaro's term, which was seen by many as kind of part of this global far right movement, but perhaps one of his most extremist incarnations. How has that actually transpired? There have been some obstacles to implementing the full set of of Bolsonaro's views on this range of social, environmental, and cultural issues. The 1988 Constitution is a very large document that is something of a social constitution and includes a whole range of social and political rights that go further than, you know, the what we're sort of familiar with, with the American Bill of Rights and, and so on. So this has been something of an obstacle, but especially on the environment and uh, especially in the Amazon, deforestation has increased quite markedly over the past several years. And Bolsonaro has promised to send in the army to make sure that trees are not being cut down. And this has had a somewhat limited sort of dampening effect. Of course, this has become international sort of issue for for the Bolsonaro government. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, had a tweet several years ago saying something to the effect that the uh, the lungs of the world were on fire, responding to a 
fire, perhaps set as often occurs in parts of the Amazon where uh, trees are are burned for agriculture purposes or or for other reasons. Of course, in parts of Brazil, especially in the northern reaches of uh, Mato Grosso state, deforestation is happening at and partially as a result of enormous soybean agribusiness boom. Brazil is already and is becoming even more so a leading producer of uh, soya beans, which are in extremely high demand from China. Brazil and the U.S. are two of the leading suppliers of soya beans to, to China. Um, while you know millionaires are being minted in these uh, agribusiness boom towns in Brazil, forest is sort of something like the loser in, in, in this arrangement. I think in, in general, um, in some other sort of social and cultural domains, I think the effect of the Bolsonaro administration has been more confined to rhetoric, but on the environment. And a lot of that is more non-enforcement than, than actual sort of alteration of laws or even a sort of administrative policy, but uh, the effects have been quite notable. And this is this is perhaps one of the most conspicuous issues in Brazil-United States relations going forward. Bolsonaro attempted to offer the Biden administration a kind of climate uh, olive branch. That's how an article in Foreign Policy recently put it. And I think the Biden administration is somewhat skeptical, wants to see results before extending a friendly hand to, to Brazil in response. So as promised, I'd like to move back to Lula and Lula as, as political figure. We had Brazilian philosopher Roberto Unger on the podcast, and he described Lula as the kind of leftist who, I guess, makes sense to, to the New York Times. What makes Lula such a potent force in Brazilian politics? You've said that he is popular with the poor, but what is it about him and his policies and his politics that make him such a threat to Bolsonaro and so popular with so many voters? Well, I, I think the appeal is is not so hard to understand from the perspective of of many, many poor Brazilians. You know, Lula is simply you know, one of them. You know, as a lathe operator, as everyone knows, he was a union organizer for, for many decades and of course, he ran in a number of elections and then as president for two terms, was uh, in office during very good economic times for Brazil and was able to, without sort of jeopardizing it's the country's economic growth, was able to institute social programs that uh, lifted many out of poverty. Of course, the country did become very fed up with Lula's party and a sizable portion of the country became very fed up with Lula himself during this period when his successor was involved in impeachment process. There were massive protests around the country against PT rule. Just one final one on Lula and Bolsonaro. It seems like the competition between the two who, as you said, seem to be the only realistic contenders for the presidency at the next election, it's, it's very personalised. It's, it's very much about them as individuals, their personalities. Obviously, Bolsonaro is a very kind of uh, divisive, polarising figure. So is Lula, but in different ways. Do you think the election fight will be fought mainly based on people's perception of, of the two men? Or is there any place for a discussion about how their policies should change Brazil in the in the campaign? I certainly hope there will be. And um, there are questions surrounding both men. One of the biggest questions I think surrounding Lula is there was a 
good article sort of delving into this, the, the sort of possibilities, the different versions of Lula that we've seen over the years in uh, America's Quarterly by a veteran Brazilian journalist, Thomas Trauman. The question I think that certainly on the mind of Brazil watchers and should be, I think, on the mind of Brazilians too, is is which Lula are we going to get? If we do get uh, Lula another time, are we going to get the quite sort of far left candidate who lost a number of races throughout the 90s? Or are we going to get the more conciliatory Lula who was able to sort of mollify, you know, markets and use this uh, very prosperous time in, in Brazil to really benefit many, many poor, poor Brazilians. It's a bit hard to tell at this point. Lula's made uh, some comments criticizing detractors of the Cuban regime during, during uh, sets of protests recently. Uh, which rattled some in Brazilian elite circles. But on the other hand, he's pledging that if he wins the presidency again, advisors close to him have said that this will be a kind of uh, government in defense of democracy, talking in the language of kind of broad front to shore up the Brazilian democratic system. It's, it's quite hard to tell at this juncture, I think. Of course, the really heady days of the commodity boom during his first two terms are over. Brazil does seem set for a economic recovery later this year. The agribusiness sector is booming, so is mining. There's a very high demand for um, raw materials that are produced in the in the country's mining industry right now. But it's unclear whether that will translate to a sort of sustained economic sort of boom on the on the order of of what was sort of the case during his first couple terms and it's unclear how he would uh, react to you know a more sort of grim economic climate you know where the kind of social policies that uh, he pursued involving the level of spending that they require you know might be a kind of a tougher sell when uh, belts are are tighter so i think we'll be watching for that regarding lula and of course regarding bolsonaro there are perhaps much more serious questions. Bolsonaro is, seems, I, th I think there were some hopes, certainly I hope that, you know, facing a more serious challenger in, in the next set of elections would require Bolsonaro to, to govern more competently. Perhaps in certain ways that may be true, that trying to strike a deal on climate with, with the Biden administration is, uh, you know, I, I think uh, shows a greater degree of savvy. But I think much more worrying has been suggestions and, you know, very sort of worrying suggestions that Bolsonaro seems to be suggesting he, he will raise false concerns about voter fraud long in advance of the election. He's been campaigning to try to get the country to switch from its current uh, electronic ballot system, which seems to work very well, to a, a paper ballot system and has said that uh, Brazil shouldn't have elections if it can't make sure that they're fair. And suggesting that the current electronic system isn't fair um, without a sufficient evidence and has been sort of pushing this in the country's Congress, has tried to push through a constitutional change to get this paper ballot system in place. The initiative just failed, but garnered a, a, a simple majority. It, of course, a larger majority was needed to to actually change the constitution. But the fact that uh, Bolsonaro was able to get even a simple majority is not an excellent sign. I, I think um, it shows that too many in the country's legislature are willing 
to go along to some extent with this, this very dangerous current. There's also a recent demonstration of, of tanks outside the Congress. Of course, uh, this was maintained that it was a simple, uh, normal exercise and nothing, nothing happened. But again, a very worrying gesture. I think there are, there are grave concerns as to what Bolsonaro and his allies might, might do if they lose a fair election next year. This is why his son is at the Mike Lindell cyber conference, because he's there whipping up here as well as back in Brazil. This idea, which obviously Trump was very attracted to, right? This idea that losing an election is a sign of voter fraud. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, we are now going to move from the domestic to the foreign with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Our listener question this week is What would a Lula return mean for Biden's attempt to work with Brazil against China? The person who sent in this question basically was suggesting that. You know, Biden is trying to work with the world's democracies to counter China. Lula, being a South American leftist, does not necessarily have an affinity for the United States. So if Lula comes back to power, what does that mean for Biden's anti-China coalition? Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. It seems to me that the, the greater interest of the Biden administration in Brazil is on climate regarding the deforestation in the Amazon, as we've as we've talked about, of course. It makes sense that it's also a you know a key ingredient in any sort of coalition to counter the rise of, of China. It's you know it's in 
the Western Hemisphere. You know, it's in the area sort of subject to the Monroe Doctrine and, and with all of the historical connotations of that. It would certainly be interesting to see what would happen under a, a Lula government. Of course, the first two Lula terms were during the era of the BRICS, and there was a lot of talk about moving toward a more sort of multi-centric international order and almost a kind of third worldism redivivus shaping together a coalition of emerging markets across sort of the global south and I suppose Russia also included in the designation. Of course, this international scene looks very different today. You know, with the rise of China kind of much more established fact and with China having separated itself in this way from uh, the rest of that sort of emerging market coalition with findings of authoritarian practices in China, and especially the very worrying reports of human rights violations in Xinjiang. I think it might be somewhat more difficult for leftists in Brazil or elsewhere in the West to be quite so optimistic about, about China's role in the international stage. Of course, skepticism and sort of bad blood toward the U.S. You know, runs deep on the uh, Latin American left. Lula is not uh, adversarial, but somewhat fraught relationship with Barack Obama, as uh, I think well documented. I think it would be interesting to see what the what the reaction would be. There, for there are forces preventing Brazil from either sort of aligning itself with, with China wholesale or with rejecting its influence entirely. One of those reasons is, uh, as I've mentioned, it's um, China is a leading buyer of, of Brazil's soybeans. And, and this is uh, one of the country's leading industries. Uh, the, the Trump administration had tried to get Brazil to to kind of lessen its dependence on China and on, uh, um, diminish China's influence within the country. It was dealing with the sympathetic administration. The foreign minister, Ernesto Araujo, was a, a very staunch critic of China, a great uh, sort of defender of the United States. And very eager to to get his country to be as close to the U.S. and as far from China as possible. But I'm not sure how much has, has changed on the ground. And um, I think uh, a fairly pragmatic stance, I think, is something of a given going forward in Brazil, no matter, no matter who's president. And I think it's worth noting that particularly on the issue that you emphasized, climate change, the extent to which the United States needs to cooperate with China is still, is still very much one of of debate, right? So one can imagine a world in which, yes, the United States is taking an adversarial approach to China, but China, the US, Brazil, and a variety of other nations are theoretically working together to tackle the climate crisis. I suppose it goes without saying that a, a Lula government would be much more tractable for the Biden administration to work with on, on climate and environment issues. Thank you to those of you who sent in your questions, and please keep them coming either by emailing podcast at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. As ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead. Nick, what in global affairs will you be watching in the next week? I will have my eyes on Peru, where the new president has just taken office, Pedro Castillo of the uh, Free Peru Party, Marxist from the Andes. Peru's first Andean president. All eyes are on the country as uh, the new presidency has had a somewhat chaotic start. Many are unsure what to expect from this new administration, which contains kind of 
mix of different elements. The economy minister, Pedro Franca, is seen as something more of a moderate, but uh, other elements of the government are further to the left. Guido Bellido, who has been named prime minister, has had posts on social media that have expressed support for the shining path, uh, Maoist insurgency. Foreign minister Hector Bejar has moved to reestablish relations with Venezuela. I think uh, many are, are very curious to see um, how how things and events in Peru will unfold for this for this new government. So I'll be I'll be watching to see see what happens in Peru. Emily, what will you be watching? Well, this won't necessarily be in the next week, but this past week, the Biden administration announced that it will be holding a democracy summit, this long-awaited, long-touted democracy summit in December. And it's going to be a collection of, and the idea is to to reiterate why democracy is important and stand up against authoritarianism and corruption, but it's going to be a variety of different types of leaders. So government leaders, civil society leaders, et cetera. And I am waiting for that guest list to drop. It will tell us a lot about the approach that Biden has taken to to this project, right? Is Is it we accept people who say that they're working in a democracy, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, let's look the other way when they commit grievous civil rights abuses, right? Like is Bolsonaro, Brazil's a democracy, will Bolsonaro be at the summit, right? Will, you know, will, we've we've spoken at great length on this podcast in previous episodes about democracy in India, but it's still the world's largest democracy. So is Modi going to be there, right? Would, will he be there if civil society leaders who are quite critical of the Modi government will, you know, will they show up? So I will be waiting with bated breath to see who's coming to the democracy summit this December. And Ido, what about you? What will you have your eye on? I know I sound like a broken record, but is it Belarus? <laughs> it's not. It's actually Afghanistan. Funnily enough, no. But I, uh, you know, I know I've been. I said I, I've, I noticed it this week, but it's clearly going to be a massive theme in international politics because the Taliban are advancing much, much faster than anyone seemed to expect. Also, not just for the consequences within Afghanistan, but also the political consequences outside of it, because the rapid advance of the Taliban within Afghanistan comes with potential repercussions outside the borders of Afghanistan. So I've been looking at the worries that China and Russia have about spillover into Central Asia. Iran is said to be worried about a potential influx of refugees into its, its within its borders. And obviously the Taliban is a Sunni group and Iran is majority Shia. And so they're uh, worried about the potential threat to Shia populations from the Taliban. And the advance comes with political risks for Joe Biden and for the retreating coalition countries which occupied Afghanistan or had a military presence in Afghanistan for 20 years because there is the legitimate question to be posed, which more and more people will be posing, I think, asking whether, I'm not coming down on one side or the other, but asking whether the relatively stable position that the US and other countries had established and keeping the Taliban basically contained whether that was prefer that would be preferable to what is happening now i don't have the answer i think there are very good arguments for joe biden's position that 
withdrawing is, is the right thing to do. And obviously, the other countries had basically had no option but to go with what the US decided. But more and more people will be asking that, especially if we get some kind of resurgence of regional instability or international terrorism or, or something like that. So I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye on that. I think you're absolutely right to keep an eye on that. And you are also right to have been keeping an eye on Belarus. I should not make fun of you for following that important story. Um, no, I shouldn't. It's an important story. You're right to follow it. Okay. With that, all that we have to do is say a huge thank you to Nick Burns for joining us on the podcast today. Nick, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And also remember to listen to our Germany special, which is covering the politics in the Federal Republic ahead of elections due next month. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the World Review newsletter to get the newsletter experience um, for free at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. You can follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.